This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat! Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribes divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. Here's a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skall. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. 
To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshipping a tree, he said, rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, he said, instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So, they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe, in the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, Even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. 
Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, Exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, His body was then drawn and quartered, and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot, and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. 
Today in England, this is called Guy Fox Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fox, and then Guy Fox is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason, and so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism, and Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them, and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, 
tapping on windows or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age-old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern, it comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat, full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, Artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches... Uh, the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts. And the witches in the 20th century are actually it's kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. 
Dennison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Dennison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Dennison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it, it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, so, Anoka Civic Leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it. So there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. You could toilet paper somebody's house, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent, but what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, the term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. 
Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. 
Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea of recalling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I, and I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specific days set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, you can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these. You get those children who are now growing up, and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. Fifty years ago, when you were too old to trick-or-treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. 
fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself. And it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, the neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne and I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. 
Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I think they found us. Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you'd call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles and figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the, the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like... Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, west Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. Way down south in Dixie. Hoss Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business, Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a little, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C., 
While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. In 1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. taking me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the hound from Buffalo, and there was Moondog, Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that... You could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air, it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. Then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, Birds would come flying towards it, boom. they go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T- turn on the transmitter for a half hour, they'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format, no. No, she's too country, she's too blue, don't, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are 
pump and puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening to say, oh, listen to that. Oh, isn't that fun? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valley, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack! Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, Mike? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Mick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman Jack! Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? They would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff in after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man, became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border mix, and now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. We wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand booths late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. 
in front of it there's little coal things sitting these Mexican dudes you know cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter one guy polishing the damn thing I go to the back where the studio is having this meeting and while they're having the meeting Reverend Jessup is on the air preaching you know yes God if you send in $25 right now the Lord's magic number Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me you know that that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez when he was pulling his deal with the preachers were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. And here comes the Wolfman on the scene with a pocket full of money, my buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately, they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills and I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked into the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7 had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and the Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly... Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gonna reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gonna dig until the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work and capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere. Becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I've tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented, as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, 
Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. He said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together, and the character played by Richard Dreyfus catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. Are you the Wolfman? <laughs> no, man, I'm not the Wolfman. Who's this on the Wolfman telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? All right. That's the Wolfman. Do you love me? He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Say you love me. Well, yeah. Uh, where where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The Wolfman is everywhere. Well, I gotta give him this note. The Wolfman comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great big beautiful world out there. And here I sit. Sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the Wolfman gave me my start in the business. And I like it. I tell you what. If I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. <laughs> Rock on, baby. We're going to do it right here. Rock and roll yourself to death. Oh, mercy. Give me some more. That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C., he was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is Our American Story. show, baby. I hope all you people take it down on your pictures, because we're going to be playing some of that sounds off the wall music, baby.
This is Lee Habib. You're listening to the great soundtrack from Randy Wallace's We Were Soldiers. Randy not only wrote this picture, he wrote the music. And he'll be joining us from time to time. He's a friend, a great writer, and loves to talk about stories and American life and American history. This is from The Patriot. What we're about to play, this was a Mel Gibson scene towards the end of the movie, This Day in History, The Battle of Yorktown. And if you remember the movie, Mel Gibson plays Benjamin Martin, Heath Ledger, Gabriel Martin, two brothers in battle, America at war with itself. And here's the final scene from The Patriot. Dear Charlotte, the war has turned. General Cornwallis took flight with his army and moved north. We continued to engage the British, and in the months that followed, Cornwallis entrenched himself at Yorktown, Virginia. George Washington escaped from the north undetected and surrounded Cornwallis, who could not retreat to the seas. It was blocked off by our long-lost friends, who had finally arrived. Vive la France. Vive la liberté. My lord, I beseech you. You must order the surrender. How could it come to this? An army of rabble. Peasants. Everything will change. Everything has changed. Though he eventually surrendered, Cornwallis himself hid in shame, appointing his subordinate to relinquish his sword. With the war ending and our militia disbanding, I take measure of what we have lost and what we have won. My hope and prayer is that the sacrifices borne by so many will spawn and fulfill the promise of our new nation. Tell the children, and especially Susan, that I will keep my promise, as I will be returning to you all soon. That was Benjamin Martin, as played by Mel Gibson, a letter home to his bride. I love that Cornwallis line, and that was, of course, the British general saying, how could it come to this, an army of rebels and peasants? He was just terrific. There's no better book on this subject than 1776 by David McCulloch. But before we get into a couple of the passages here, it's so important for us to remember that these men didn't know what was going to happen when they started this revolution. You know, the country was split. There were loyalists who didn't want this to happen. Families were split. And the risks were high. And the British power, my goodness, the greatest army in the world. And David McCulloch was at Hillsdale College I believe it was 2005. And he gave a speech about why we need to think about and judge men in their own time. And remember, again, they didn't know they were making history 
They were living in it. One of the truths about history that needs to be portrayed, needs to be made clear to a student or to a reader, is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. Nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. History could have gone off at any number of different directions in any number of different ways at any point all the way along the line, just as your own life can. Nor in a way is, was there ever anything like the past. There was never any past, if you stop to think about it. Nobody, nobody lived in the past. Jefferson, Adams, Washington, they didn't walk around saying, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? They lived in the present, just as we do. The difference was it was their present, not ours. And just as we don't know how things are going to turn out for us, they didn't either. They didn't know. They didn't know. Indeed, when 1776 begins, part one, the siege, McCulloch begins the book with a quote from George Washington on January 14th, 1776, quote, The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. That's how the book began, and this is how it ends. In the last analysis, McCulloch says on page 293 of 1776, In the last analysis, it was George Washington and the army that won the war for American independence. The fate of the war and the revolution rested on that army, not on the French. The Continental Army, not the Hudson River or the possession of New York or Philadelphia, was the key to victory, and it was Washington who held the army together and gave it spirit through the most desperate of times. Washington was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He'd made serious mistakes. But experience had been his great teacher from boyhood. And in this, his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. Again and again in letters to Congress and to his officers, and in his general orders, he had called for perseverance, for, quote, perseverance and spirit, for, quote, patience and perseverance, for, quote, unremitting courage and perseverance. Always that word. Soon after the victories of Trenton and Princeton, he had written, quote, a people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be driven. Without Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution most certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Green foresaw as the war went on, quote, he'll be the deliverer of his own country. The war was a longer, far more arduous and more painful struggle than later generations would understand or sufficiently appreciate, closed McCulloch. By the time it ended, it had taken the lives of an estimated 25,000 Americans, or roughly 1% of the entire population. In percentage of lives lost, it was the most costly war in American history, except the Civil War. The year 1776, celebrated as the birth year of the nation, and for the signing of the Declaration of Independence, 
was for the vote for those who carried the fight for independence forward a year of all too few victories of sustained suffering, disease, hunger, desertion, cowardice, disillusionment, defeat, terrible discouragement and fear as they would never forget, but also phenomenal courage, bedrock devotion to country, and that too they would never forget, especially for those who had been with Washington and who knew what a close call it was at the beginning and how often circumstance, storms, contrary winds, the oddities or strengths of individual character had made the difference. The outcome seemed little short of a miracle. This day, the battle at Yorktown. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stromopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Ark comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders Lost Ark, do you want to help? And 
I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast. I just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and, as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that... It's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and... And we had no long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us, mm. so we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Mm. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in Southern Mississippi back in the early '80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12 year old, respectively, growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s, pre-internet, you know, how do you remake a 26 million dollar movie on your allowance? You know, we knew nothing about it, and and for the first year, so we kind of, figuratively speaking, groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that. You know, I wrote a 600-page shot list, and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless. You know, close up, Indy walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards. That's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set. Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer that was our time. So uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day. Um, we'll start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where... You know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the uh, lining the uh, the shelves, and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down, and um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire, and for some reason they had a problem with this. Um, so. But they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't a fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more, more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it because, again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again. Through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about 
learning about composition, lighting, blocking, acting, and bit by bit we got better. And only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next. Now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s, and that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of, you know, Raiders paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory sat down and, and Eric, you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as that we could, but, um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were... There, in video stores were really in their infancy that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted you know um, there was an availability issue you know and and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things so when the movie was re-released in the theater we went back and watched it you know again as much as our you know allowance would allow. So the boys ended up finishing their scene by scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi on August 12th, 1989. Chris Trompolis, Eric Zala, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked... The Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death by propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways going off to college and the film was largely forgotten until 2003 when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan. So she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and like exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know, my wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you like let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that like, that reaction, you know? And she's like, this is cool, this is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received a very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of 
opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down on you know stationary Steven Spielberg and you know his signature and you know this my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his his work um uh, wow it can't get any better than this but I was wrong um you know jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent we have an agent now um Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon God <laughs> I was doing okay handling all this up to this point but now I feel kind of sick in the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds, thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.